Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, Nick and I sit down to talk about the economy. We go through everything that is top of mind right now, or at least that's top of mind for us and a lot of the people we're speaking to. We talk about the economy overall, the equity markets, the bond markets, the real estate markets, crypto and Bitcoin and everything in between. So we, uh, we start with the general data that we're looking at in the economy talk about some of the government's possible next actions. We talk about specific things in real estate here in the Ontario area and population trends and data that we're looking at, some of the newer data that just came out. Talk about variable and fixed mortgages. We try to go through it all. There is a lot to try to digest here. I don't think anyone can anticipate or predict accurately what happens next, especially in the short term. Maybe in the long term, we kind of have some ideas, but in the short term, everything's up in the air. Everything's on the table right now. I think by the end of the summer, it'll be very interesting to see where this economy heads. And we are here for the ride. For some reason, I feel like this summer in particular, instead of just relaxing and chilling out. It's more like watching the economy with a box of popcorn in front of us and kind of, you know, nibbling on that popcorn as we watch what unfolds in front of us. Definitely interesting times. Probably since we've been watching the economy, the most interesting that we've ever seen. So that's what we get into on this episode. Hopefully enjoy this show. And listen, if you are listening to this and you want to do a deep dive on real estate because you're trying to figure out, is now the right time? Is it the wrong time? Should I get into real estate investing for my family? Should I stay away for it, from it? Some of the best information that we've put together is in some of the books that we give away for free. And you can find each of those at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. So if you want some information, you can find it there. We give those books away for free in hopes that one day after reading them, perhaps we will be able to work together. And that's why we do that. So you can find digital copies of all of our books at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. That's it with the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we're live, Nick. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. So the inflation is like ripping for, as we're, this is late June, just for anyone listening to this in July, we're recording this pretty much right at the end of June and inflation is still ripping forward. And the reason Nick, I'm, I want to share this is because on this episode right now, we're going to talk about the economy and some, some of the data we're looking at, some real estate stuff and all of this stuff. But one of the things that caught my attention yesterday, I know you looked at some of this stuff too, was that inflation is ripping higher. But some of the data points from some, some of the things that we like to look at, specifically this, this particular data point that we talked about at the last Your Life, Your Terms event, which was an economic indicator, and it's called the ISM Manufacturing Index, which is an, it's basically, it, it's also known as the Purchase, Purchasing Managers Index, and it's a, this monthly indicator of U.S. economic activity based on a survey of purchasing managers at a whole bunch of manufacturing firms. So this index basically is used to get, give you know, economists some type of gauge of, of economic activity. And some macro guys use this as like a leading indicator for the economy. 
And one of the charts that we looked at mapped that ISM, so that manufacturing index data, against inflation. And this thing that we started talking about at that economic update, I guess, in May, um, it started to turn and go down, and now it's gone down further. So we're in a situation where inflation is ripping straight up, and this manufacturing index is coming down. And any time throughout history, on this particular chart we're looking at goes back to 1997, there is some correlation here that that's going to be corrected in one way, shape, or form, that inflation looks like it's due to come tumbling down. So we're going to see basically, I would say in the next 60 days, by the end of this summer, we're going to know if inflation is going to keep ripping forward or are, is the U.S. already in a recession and inflation is going to be tumbling down. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing that maybe sometimes people, when they talk about this stuff, that they they maybe gets miscommunicated is that if inflation comes back down, it doesn't mean prices, prices. come down, right? It just means that the price growth slows, but we've already gone through this batch of inflation. And I think it's pretty kind of safe to say that I don't even think people expect prices to come back down in to where they were. Now, if they're overly elevated now, you know, there's been lumber prices have come down, some copper prices have come down, but they haven't kind of reverted back to where they are. And I just don't know with where things are at, um, a lot of manufactured goods and food and that type of stuff and with where supply chains are at and stuff like that. I don't know if that comes down, but the growth, the, the almost, I know the government number is not double digit growth, but the double digit growth, you know, that we're really seeing on our uh, uh, kind of receipts that when we're paying for, for things at the stores might um, come down that well, well the growth should, it might, yeah. Year over it might year. Stop. So the year, year over, over year, year yeah. increases may come down. I keep saying may. Yeah. Cause, cause you don't know what not. happens with You're energy. Right. Yep. Like with oil and energy, if that doesn't turn soon, it's not like the government can just print new oil. So no, they, you, well, you would think, US, though, if the economy, if that ISM manufacturing index is is showing that the economy is slowing and shrinking and there's less activity, demand for oil goes away as well. So you would think, even with the geopolitical landscape, that oil will come down as well. We would think that's in our future. Mm-hmm. And to your point, not back to prices maybe last year or two years ago, but just the year-over-year increases. So when I say come back down, I guess the inflation rate of these things doesn't keep elevated. It kind of flattens out for a little bit here. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I guess the the thing that just paused me and I guess frustrates me is that in the last few years, between COVID and what we're seeing now with energy, I think I just get incredibly frustrated that you know, nothing's really changed and we don't see any policy response other than, okay, we're going to do some interest rate stuff and all this, this kind of short-term band-aid garbage. Right. But if you look at, you know, I said a, a while ago, I'm like, if one good thing could come out of all this COVID lockdown and stuff, it would be like, you know, fixing the supply chain. So we're not dependent on, on just everything overseas all the time. And I don't, I haven't seen any kind of attempt to do that within Canada. Right. And if you look at energy, it's the same thing. You know, we have a lot of energy. We have a lot of natural resources in this country. And there's just no attempt to invest in that sector, that infrastructure. And it just puts us in this situation at the mercy of everyone else. It's it's just like like really crappy forethought. Like it sucks. I think you're touching on like one of the biggest things of a manipulated economy. And I know some people do not like it when I say manipulated economy, but 
economy. But what I mean by that is when interest rates are dictated by a group of a small, a very tiny, small group of central bankers, and they can make the interest rates whatever they choose to be, if they hold them down for extended periods of time. If you and I are business people, and we are in a society that kind of favors capitalism, the whole idea is that you save capital, you take a risk with that capital, by putting it to work in some capacity, and hopefully your risk pays off and you get a return on that capital. I mean, I'm summarizing capitalism maybe a, a little bit too too uh, too. too no, but we get there. it. We take a risk. You got to do something productive with it to, yeah. to try to earn so, off of it. So what happens is when interest rates are held so low for so long, and what that does is it flushes newly printed money into the economy because rates are so low. It inflates then, asset prices. And it inflates asset prices. But then me as, as a, let's say, a capitalist or yeah. somebody as a business owner or an entrepreneur or a risk taker, you go into this defensive stance where you're not really thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to like pull my capital together and start a new business venture to maybe build factories here in Ontario or build some new infrastructure that I can kind of get a reward, uh, a return of. You go to this defensive mode where you're like, holy smokes, I'm just going to buy these assets because I don't want my money that's sitting there saving and accumulating, waiting for me to take some risk with it. I don't want it to lose value. I'll just buy some real estate because real estate prices are going up 7%, 10%, 15%, 20% over the last few years. Mm -hmm. Why would I do all that risk? And it forces capital into a defensive structure mode and it flows into hard assets. And what the government is accidentally doing because they don't have a clue is they're steering capital to a defensive mode instead of to a mode that would encourage investment in infrastructure, investment in factories, bringing things back to North America. So it's the manipulated interest rates that like really have a big influence on where capital flows. Yeah, I don't know where I saw it. I, th I think I, either I sent it to you or sent it to me or whatever, but someplace it was the graph between um, what, you know, just the amount of the GDP growth in kind of, let's say, the real estate sector versus research and development in the country. And research and development, not it's not flatlined. It's dropped, as to your point, as these other things like, like real estate has gone up as a percent of GDP for exactly those reasons. And it, yeah, and I think that's why I get frustrated about the whole thing. It's like this energy thing. Like, like Canada's got lots of energy. And I, and I look, and I, there's, there's conflicting viewpoints about the energy. Some people say, you know, oil sands are just the worst thing ever. They're tar sands and it's the most political, but, you know, it's the most environmentally unfriendly thing that there is. Um, others are saying, well, there's, you know, newer technology and it's not really like, like that anymore and we need to invest in the infrastructure. And I haven't looked into either one deep enough to know one way or the other. So I'm just going to take a neutral on that. But, I mean, we got to seriously consider it with the situation we're in. If we have the resources, why wouldn't we invest, not even from a private sector? If the government's going to waste their money on all sorts of other crap, at least put it into something that could be useful down the line. But I guess in these four-year terms, it just doesn't, it doesn't make for a good headline ever. Right? No, there's so, no incentive. Yeah. I just need to be voted back in. But I know we, yeah. we took a kind of right turn there. No, no, so no that's fine. I was just going to say some of the other data that we're looking at is the University of Michigan consumer sentiment in the U.S. has plummeted straight down in the last six months. The U.S. real personal income um, has come, I guess it kind of kind of went up after that COVID spike there. And now it's this choppy line pretty much straight down. The U.S. personal savings rate as a percent of disposable income 
went way up during COVID and now it's right back in line to where it was. Yeah, so the income and the, the savings rate is because of the government money though. Because you know how you pause Correct. That's like, yeah. it was. Yeah. And then the University of Michigan consumer buying conditions related to price composite durable. So just, you know, the consumer buying conditions, I guess, sentiment is the lowest it's seen on this chart. And this chart goes back to 1979. It's like straight down. So consumers don't look like in the U.S. And we're talking about the U.S. because the U.S. economy still influences Canada greatly. Oh, Wholesale, it influences the world. world yeah. yeah, still. Wholesaler, um, wholesalers' inventories levels are straight up, which means the inventories that people are sitting on, wholesalers are sitting on, are through the roof. And that chart goes back to what, 1980? Yeah, yeah so if buying stops, then this, this, this can change the price levels of things. In so I gotta think it looks to me home buyer sentiment is straight down in the US. So it looks like we are headed towards uh, an economy that is going to slow rather sharply. And if that's the case, we have so we, we're recording this before the um, interest rate increase in Canada on July interest rate announcement announcement. Sorry, an announcement. I'm assuming July's a lot. Yeah, I think everyone's um, assuming that for uh, July 13th. So if they raise a quarter point or they've been hinting at three quarters of a point, I saw some people even saying a full point, but let's say it's three quarters of a point because you know, they're really going to show they're serious right while the entire economy is slowing right under their feet. I mean, if they keep slowing, I think the next meeting for the bank of Canada, September, August, I think it's a break. And then it's September. If they keep raising, like this is going to be fascinating. Either we're going to see this narrative shift from the central bankers by late summer saying, oh, well, oh my gosh, like, you know, we don't want to interfere with midterm elections in the U.S. And or, you know, we don't. Or it's in control because the year over year numbers. The year over year number, inflation numbers look yeah. in line. And maybe they kind of stand down and that's the late. The like you can still have $2 gas, you know, early next year and inflation's not high anymore because it wasn't. Well, it was close to $2 before, right? So, and then, or if, or if, if let's say gas comes down a little bit, let's say the gas comes down to a buck 60, which is still a pretty hefty number, but that's a, that's a, what is it? That's a 20% drop from $2. So that's a 20% drop in the inflation numbers, which even if other things are kind of escalated or highly priced, it brings the government calculation kind of down. So then it, they can say, hey, okay, we, you know, we got this under control and they can't go to your point about the elections. Once, once the fall comes, I mean, historically, the U.S. has just kind of stayed out of things and not made an announcement to the Federal Reserve because they don't want to start to influence elections. And if, um, and if, if they're going to kind of, you know, wash their hands of it for those few months, Canada kind of has to, because even if Canada wanted to raise, it's good. if they raise at that time and the U.S. doesn't, they start strengthening, the, the Canadian dollar becomes more attractive and starts strengthening, which is the last thing that Canada wants to, be, to remain competitive. So they, they're not going to want that. So we're at this weird inflection point then, like either they keep raising rates as they've told us they will do right through the end of the year and into next year. And, you know, rates just go through the moon or by the end of this summer, we get this kind of narrative shift by the central bankers saying, oh, OK, you know what? We've we we slayed the dragon. Inflation is in line. No need for further increases. I'm just wondering that if they raise them in September and let's say they try to squeak out another one in October, let's say they go, you know, another they do July's a lock. They do September and October. What happens if they raise really tight into a, a really strengthening recession? They can make everything 10 times worse. So like it's either they're going to do a quick about face 
if, if this recession, if this, if this does look like we're entering a recession in the economy, or if they keep raising into a recession, like shit's going to get rather nasty. No one raises rates into a recession. When this, I, the reason we keep talking about this ISM data, Nick, I have it right here. When these ISM levels hit almost where they are right about now, the Fed and central banks always start easing. And there's a history of these dates, like in 1974 and 80, 81, 84, 89, 95, 98, 2001, Not where they are yet, because the numbers... Not are, just not, yet, not, not, exactly. Because ISM is still out. above 50. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like 54, and 55. The, and the numbers whatever. haven't come out for June yet, right? So Correct, not that I've seen. So uh, even if it's slowing, that might come out in a little while. Yeah. Or if July slows further, that'll be August. So there's not quite there, but yeah, to your point. No, but whenever so ISM comes like, down to the level of 50 or just yeah, under, they start saying. easing. Whereas what's happening now is this manufacturer manufacturer's index might come down to 50 and they're going to be raising rates, which is like the complete opposite of what they've always done. <laughs> so that's just like, this is going to be rather entertaining. Either we're going to see a complete narrative shift, like we slayed the dragon, okay, we're going to hold on rates. I guess that's what the message will be. We're just going to hold because they can't come right away back in September and say, oh my gosh, you know what? We're going to provide liquidity. We're going to, we're going to turn up the QE presses again. No, they have to, they talk it, they, they, they speak to it first. They always, they, so they're going to they did the same thing with the raising rates. So they might put it on hold and speak to it saying, hey, we're monitoring conditions. But what I'm saying is that it's almost like if they don't start cutting soon, like if they don't start cutting in September, if this does take hold and this ISM data does come down by the end of uh, end of September and they they just hold. Well, there were examples here in this list that we saw that they, that they didn't actually raise. They just, um, see, like the 2015 one, the pause in rate height cycle, no cut or expansion. Yeah, but so right. after the last 12 times, once they pause. Yeah, I think there was one other, but but yeah, but I'm just saying there, there is that too and you don't know the impact that has because if people, were, if people are expecting them to continue, remember we've been promised raises this year and next year. So if people can expect them to continue raising then they pause, you just don't know what impact that has on, on things. So they can do that for a period of time before they might have to shift directions, maybe or maybe not. And I guess the flip side to this is, can they keep raising? And I guess the answer is if inflation keeps ripping higher, they can keep raising. Mm -hmm. But to me, that world, as we get higher and higher, inflation has to be higher and higher because they can't let rates get higher than the inflation rate. And just for anyone listening, if you're new to us, the reason we strongly believe that is that when you have so much debt in the world and global debt is on a four to one ratio compared to the GDP, global GDP, so global debt is four to one compared to GDP. When you have that much more debt than the size of the economy, you can't let rates be higher than inflation, otherwise it just begins to dwarf the size of the eco economy rapidly and you enter a debt spiral where you're trying to print so much new money just to make your interest payments. So what, the, what these central bankers actually need is the inflation rate to be higher. So even though the economy not, might not be growing naturally, they inflate it larger so that the, G, the debt doesn't get away from it. So the only way for rates to go higher would be for inflation to be higher than the rates. So in, that, in, in this example that I'm talking, like if we get to, let's say, 8% interest rates, inflation would have to be ripping at like 12% or 15%. So the real rate then would be still a negative mm -hmm. rate. Yeah, it's almost like when there are negative rates, like if you have a $20,000 credit card and it's maxed to the limit, when, when it's positive rates right? The higher the rate, it, it gets hard to create any room there. You can't keep up with the payments. You can only make, you know, monthly payments stay, stay the same, maybe at best case scenario. Negative rates would be like raising your, um, 
your credit limit. So you still have the $20,000 balance, but if you can stay in a negative rate scenario, you're then you're, you call the credit limit, the, the, the size of the economy, then that credit limit can grow. So then all of a sudden, you know, maybe you get it up to a $30,000 balance. So now you're not using 100% of that. Now your debt to credit limit ratio looks better, just like the debt, debt to GDP ratio would look better. It's the same type of thing. For anyone that's not familiar with that type of thing, that's kind of the way I've, I explain it to myself once. I'm like, oh, I, I kind of get it. I would like to hear you explain it to yourself once. You're just driving in the car talking to yourself. Like, hey, I'm gonna no, I'm just trying to think of analogies. Four things like You've this when we're doing this things through because, yeah, it's, it's kind of kind of complicated. Yeah. Because enough people have asked us, they're like, I don't get it, this whole negative rate thing, right? Mm-hmm. And to be fair, we, you know, we, this is the upper limit now of when we were talking about rates. And, you know, because we've always said they can't really raise rates much, right? We, and you did always say um, in a high inflationary environment, they can raise rates. But even when we thought they would raise rates, I think we were like, I don't remember. I didn't go back and listen to the podcast. But I think we're right about kind of the upper limit that, and I don't, I, I like don't even know if I really thought they would get here, to be honest. And I didn't think they would get here at the speed that they did. That's but, what's crushing the economy more than yeah, anything. Yeah, but I think what they're, I, and I don't know this, but I just feel like they, they're um, the speed at which they're going. They have to go at that speed because I. The election. I, I always give them the benefit of the doubt, like that they're smart. Yeah, they're you smart. really shouldn't do that. So, because I think they know that eventually they're going to have to kind of. And when you say they, you mean stay, the central bank. Yeah, so they're going to have to stabilize or reverse or just do something a little bit different. So I think if they can pump it up very quickly, it gives them the the, the ammunition to do that. Whereas if they started going slow and the economy still slowed, then there's no ammunition. And then people are like, oh, what the hell's going on? It's almost- See, I, I, I credit you to think you think they're being strategic like that, that they would raise quickly just so they can cut. I'm thinking they're just looking at inflation and they're like, holy shit, this thing's getting away from us. We better fucking raise the yeah, rates and we're screwed. I, I like this by Luke Roman. It kind of goes to the whole spending thing that we were just talking about. Luke Roman had this tweet. So he's a great macro guy on Twitter if you want to follow him. But he has this tweet that says, I'm finding that not many realize annual U.S. entitlement payments alone are approximately 70% of the U.S. federal tax receipts. So entitlements are like payouts that they're kind of committed to giving out to different constituents in the government have committed to different things in their different states and their different regions. Tax receipts that are at a 40-year high. So entitlement payments alone are 70% of the U.S. federal revenue. And those tax receipts, the revenue of the government, is at a 40-year high. It's like yeah, there's so they're, very, not very, be, they're not going to be 70% this year. They're going to be no, yeah. higher. It's going to be, so there's very loom, uh, room, little room for error with these interest rates because if you keep cranking rates, just the payments on your debt start chewing into this. I mean, you're kind of screwed. And I guess, Nick, the biggest thing, I guess, for anyone listening about where we kind of thought rates would cap out, it's right about here. Maybe they can get another half a half full point after July. Like, this is like where we're at. Like, this is it. But the only, the only caveat or asterisk to that whole thing is how high inflation is. Mm. Because yeah, because then rates are still negative. Real like, rates are still negative. 10%. Yeah. Like, if rates go to 10%, but inflation is 20%, then you subtract the inflation off of the rates Real rates are negative 10%, yeah. meaning that you're growing 10% holding a hard asset in general. We're averaging here. Even if rates are 10%, you're paying out 10%. If everything's inflating at 20, you're still ahead. And I so think rates been- are then technically in the, the real rate is actually still negative, which is obviously very low. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's an important distinction there. 
high rates would be if rates were well, just 10%. Say inflation's at zero and rates are at 5%. Yeah. And they're plus five. Yeah. So it makes a big difference. Yes. Yeah. And we're still in a negative rate environment. What happened if we, what would happen if we actually went to a positive rate environment? That's the debt spiral. That's when the economy isn't growing as fast as the debt is growing and your interest payments just start chewing into the economy and take all the tax revenues and you have to print more and more and you're in this. Well, we'll see. It'll be really interesting that hypothesis because if inflation, stated inflation comes down. So let's say it comes, let's say they, yeah, they tackle it, comes down back down to 2%. Well, then now rates, what are rates, three and a quarter? No. I've lost track. There's yeah. so many changes. Yeah. I don't even know. <laughs> don't no, know. Uh, but, well, okay, call it 3%. You, what are you asking, Bank Prime? Or yeah. Over, yeah, yeah, I was calling Bank, bank yeah, Prime. Yeah, here, I'll, I'll check where you're speaking there. But call it, uh, well, I was thinking overnight lending rate, basically, on that. But call it, call it, let's say call it 3%. So inflation's all. So Bank Prime is 3.7. Yeah, I'm talking overnight lending, like Bank of Canada, not, not the, the big banks. So... Let, we need we need a new Google person here. But anyway, so let's say so if they get inflation back down to two percent, and let's call Bank Prime just we'll call it three percent, then all of a sudden we're in a plus one percent percent scenario. Then it changes. Then it will change things, right? That that really kind of changes things a lot, because that's that if inflation starts coming down even without rates moving much, all of a sudden you're you're increasing real rates. Correct. Right. Without yes. them changing interest rates, Correct. which has an impact on the economy. You're tightening. Yeah, exactly. So that's what it'll be interesting to see because if that starts happening, well, then how low can they go? So this overnight lending rate of the Bank of Canada is 1.5. So they can We've get it back. We've only had in, three still, rate increases. Yeah. They can still get it back. They can get inflation down to 2% and it can still be negative. The thing is that neg- it's still negative, but it's a very small negative. It's not nearly as negative as it was in the past. And they still need their debt to GDP ratio to get better. So they need it at a larger negative. So then what happens? They need inflation. So they, yeah, or do they cut rates again slightly? Like it's, it's Sure. Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm or they need inflation. Thing. Yeah. Or they get inflation down to about, because remember they said they were, they were willing to let inflation run hot. So maybe they get inflation down to about 4%. And they're like, we're good. It's at a manageable level, everyone. We've decided it's at a manageable level. And then they leave rates here, call it one and a half or 2%. Right, inflation's at four percent. Rates are negative too. They can then slowly whittle away at their, their debt to sure. GDP ratio. If you think they can do things perfectly? No, no, no. I'm I'm just saying, like, <laughs> yeah, in no, a I hear. World, yeah, I agree. Yeah, if they actually achieve that, it can be done. Yeah, like it's possible. And I think that's the kind of thing situation that they're after. I think so, and that's 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 the goal. So we'll see we'll see what happens with it. So either. Which they've never been able to kind no, of thread the no. needle like that before. And so. when we look at the 1940s data, as Lynn Alden, when, when she was on the podcast here talking how it, like inflation will spike higher, then it will come down and kind of level off. It could level off for a year. It could level off for 18 months, two years, then it spikes higher again. Maybe we just go into that environment. But we're basically in a situation where the government is going to look at the inflation data and say, oh, inflation continuing to rip higher so we can keep raising rates. Real rates will be negative because inflation will be higher than the rates. Or... A recession is really taking hold here. They start to recognize that a recession is really taking hold. They shit themselves because everything's shrinking too quick. Their tax revenues are going to be decreasing. They have less money for the interest payments on their own debt, which went higher because of their own actions of raising rates. And they have to provide liquidity in some way, shape, or form. QE, mail checks out to people, whatever you want to do, but money has to be flushed. Well, you sent me um, today from California. 
Yeah, they're right? going to send $1,050 or something to, to I don't know. Yeah, it's not everybody. That. It was like $350 per person in a household if you, if it, I forget the numbers. There were decent numbers of income. It's like if you made less than 75 as an individual or less than low 100,000 range of, as, a, as a family, you would get the 350 per person and up to one dependent. So you, could, you were eligible for up to three payments is what I briefly read on that. It's lucky but, but, California has a lot of savings. Well, that's, what, so that's the first you know, thing. Yeah, that won't like, inflict, in, in, in fact, impact anything. Where are they going to get? Like, they have no money already. This, it's just. Amazing. And the other thing I wanted to show you, Nick, that just like if there's cracks showing in the system, the other thing I wanted to show you here was the Bank of Japan now crossed the threshold. Have you seen this chart yeah. on how much of the Bank of the the Bank of Japan has been buying of their own government bonds? So I know anyone listening to this, you can't see this chart, but they were buying, I don't know if it's in the trillions. Yeah, it is in the trillions. They were buying roughly like $3 trillion worth of Japanese bonds. It looks like in this chart, it's a month or so. It's, it's between one and three. And then last month they bought nine trillion. So they, they tripled the highest amount that they were, they were ever buying. And the Bank of Japan, as of I think right now, like today or tomorrow, they're going to the crazy own, part of that chart. Hold on, hold on one second. They're going to own over fifty percent of all of the outstanding debt of the country will be will be owned by the Bank of Japan. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. The crazy. No, part. I was just going to say it's not a month because you can see how many lines there are between each year, and it's not twelve. It's like a week, maybe. It's, yeah, it's I don't know if it's every, a week. Every, every every two weeks or something, but yeah. So they're just buying shitloads. And then, and then this other thing I wanted to, to kind of share with you just on like what's happening in the economy is this thing that we saw. I just want to read this out. I think it's from a Wall Street Journal article. And it, it is from a Wall Street Journal article. It says, foreign investors barely register in, in the markets a few years ago. We're now talking about real estate. Now they account for nearly a third of institutional investment in single family rental homes. Um, they've been very limited. There's been very limited overseas investment into single family rental space prior to COVID, but nothing at this scale, this particular analyst is speaking. And here's the next, this little next paragraph I want to read out. German insurer Alliance. I think we actually had our insurance with Alliance at one point. Are they in North America as well? Anyway, German insurer Alliance last month said it is investing in a venture to buy more than 4 billion of us rental homes. Singapore's Sovereign Wealth Fund, GIC, is backing plans by Quinn Residences to buy single-family rental homes across the southeastern U.S. So you got some of now, in the economy, so messed. This goes to the point of investing in, like, useful enterprise. You have some of the biggest funds now saying, oh, my gosh, forget investing in anything productive into the economy we're just going to plow into single family home real estate in the US. So think about this for a second. Americans buy money, buy money. Americans spend money to buy electronics or cars from different countries in Asia and Europe. Those same countries take Americans' money for those electronic goods, right? Because nothing's really manufactured in the US. They then come back to America, buy the homes that Americans live in, and then offer those homes up for rent to the Americans who gave them the money to be able to do this. (laughs) Like, I mean, the whole world's completely backwards. Mm -hmm. The American consumer, because they're not building anything in America, pays for things. The money goes offshore. Then the money comes back onshore. The people who bring it back onshore buy single family homes, driving the price of single family homes and Americans then rent. I mean, you can't even like, I I don't even know what to say to this. 
And this to me is just completely representative of the manipulation of money. This is what happens. You don't get productive anything. And to your point earlier with four-year election cycles, no politicians incentivized to fix any problem because they're just worried about getting reelected in four years. And these are problems that are foundational that can't be fixed in a four-year cycle. You need someone to come in here and spend a decade fixing some of these things. Yeah, it's just unpopular because it involves cuts. Like, you know, we've said it before, you've said it, and it's not just, it's not a unique idea. To me, it's just this deficit spending thing is the root, it's the problem, right? As soon as you can just spend money without being held accountable or without having to balance your books, just everything gets screwed up, right? Like it just messes everything up because as soon as, if you had to run on a platform of saying, well, okay, guys, here we're going. Here's what we're going to spend money on. Here's what we can't spend money on because we don't have enough money. This is so we just got this. But so all these other things, we're going to cut. And no matter what they are, like if they're social programs, some people are going to be pissed off. If it's a healthcare, some you know, childcare, some other people are going to be pissed off. Like you're never going to make people happy, and people are going to be up in arms. It's just you know. So, but that's what has to happen. So like, how does it happen? Or everything just kind of gets there. You, we continue down this path, and people just park park their money in these other things until it gets to a breaking point and things kind of get revalued in some ways, right? Because isn't that what happened? If we look at some of the European countries, so look at what happened in Cyprus and Greece recently, or I guess not recently, but not too long ago, when they just, their inflation just kind of kicked in super, super high. What's really happened is they just basically started revaluing things against what something that they felt was more reliable. So like the euro or that currency instead. And that's eventually what happens is people just lose faith and it happens, it happens in other countries. It happens, it's happening right now in other parts of the world, right? It's why people run to the U.S. dollar, for example, because the U.S. dollar, as much as we're saying, well, this is, this is a sham, is a, is a it's less, the, it's less the of a sham going. Yeah, it's less of a sham than these other ones, right? So then people run there. So, so, but in those economies, things just get revalued against other things eventually if it gets bad. And it seems hard to believe that something like the U.S. dollar that could happen to, but maybe people just get fed up with it. But it's exactly what we're seeing. And it doesn't help that, the thing that blows me away with this, you're, you're gonna bring this up too, is I'm looking at it, like if you look at real estate, why, if, if these companies are buying these properties, because there's demand for these properties. And they need to hide their money somewhere safe. Yeah, okay, there is they that can, They can't keep it in the cash in the bank. Yeah, but I'm like, if. It shouldn't be that hard to see demand for properties there. I guess maybe that low interest rates is what changed everything. So the demand increased. Well, maybe the real estate market won't crash in the U.S. as much as everyone's thinking if these guys are coming in buying billions. No, no. What I'm thinking is, is up to this point is like, why haven't there been more production of, of, of housing units? So like Ontario is a great example, right? We've discussed the shortage of Ontario units. In, in, you know, but I guess there's just no, no communication, no conversation around it. And that's why. Because the, obviously the developers want to build the properties because they're, they're going to yeah, profit but, from it. But when the land goes up so quickly, why develop it? Just sell it. Just sell it to the next developer. Yeah. Which is funny because that's what we've seen with a couple of developers we know. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Why develop it? Yeah. Buy it. Forget all the hassle of dealing with payroll and inventory and customers. The land goes up in value. Flip it to the yeah. next person so who wants to hold it. It's another example of not having to, you don't need the investment into the into that, that space because. Rates are manipulated low and it causes a, it causes incorrect data signals across the whole economy. Mm-hmm. It's a, so this, this data that I wanted to show, and I know we've been kind of alluding to it, is that. In Canada, so now if we just shift gears a little bit and talk about Canadian real estate, in Canada and now in Ontario, the latest Ontario population projections is telling us 
that we're going to need, and I, I, I believe this has been in the headlines, we need just under about a million new homes over the next nine or 10 years, this decade, to kind of satisfy the population. Well, the CMHC report that just yeah, I'm going to get to it. Okay. I'm going to get to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is a million new homes just based on popula- population projections. The CMHC report is what uh, what we would need to make housing affordable. Yeah. Right? But this is just, we need a million new homes. What I wanted to, to mention is that right now, we, we if you use the last five years, we make about 70,000 new housing units in Ontario a year. So which means we're on track to make about 700,000 over the next 10 years, but we need a million. That's a shortfall of 300,000 homes. 300,000 homes. If you take the town of Oakville, the population of Oakville is what, like just under 200,000 or whatever? That means we have about what, 90,000 homes in Oakville if you use 2.1 family, you know, people per, per housing unit. So we're going to be short like three towns of Oakville by the, the end of the decade in houses. And then, yeah, to your point, Nick, sorry. Now we can, you can kind of read this off or whatever, but this is what I wanted to talk to you. They're, they they CMHC came, came out with a report to say if we were going to make housing affordable in Ontario again, where it's about 37% of everybody's income goes towards, you know, being able to have somewhere nice to live, their forecast is that we need... 1.85 million homes above the projections. So for a total of like 2.6 million homes in the next nine years, we've made we've made 700,000. Yeah, Mike Moffat has here in this tweet. I'm going to read this out. Here's the summary. So for Ontario, we'd need 1.85 million new homes above the 769,000 homes for the business as usual case. In other words, Ontario would need to build 2.6 million homes in the next nine years. We build around 680,000 homes in the last 10. So to make housing affordable, we need to build 2.6 million, but we may, we build about 680 or 700,000 in the last 10. So we got to do, what is that? Double, triple. That's almost quadruple. Yeah. That's almost quadruple the pace that we're building homes. I, I, you know, it's probably bad, but the CMHC report out of all of them, I put no weight on zero. No, no, I know. But if we're just using something. No, but their projections have been so bad for so long and everything. They're, they're, it's like, it's like as soon as CMHC says it, that's when I start down. Like if I believed it and then CMHC says it, I'm like, oh man, I think I'm wrong. I got to go back and see where I was wrong. Yeah. But then I mean, what do you believe? No, no, I get it. But I'm just saying, I got to reevaluate my own, my own thinking because I just think those numbers. Well, go back to this. Because, well, no, it's, it's the calculation they're using because they're going back to this affordability thing. And they're going back to the 37 to 40%. So there's other variables that we don't know. We don't know square footage. We don't know interest interest rate they're using. We don't know what salary increases they're using. So there's so many things that we don't know about that I haven't read the whole report. But that's not my point. My point is... No, there's a shortage. Yeah, yeah, I get it. How big is this shortage? Because on the conservative case, on just Ontario's population projections, we're going to be short about 300,000 homes or 350,000 homes. To make homes affordable... We're going to be short just under 2 million homes. Yeah. So pick your, I guess I'm saying pick your poison. Well, Ontario's projection with the affordability task force report that came out was 1.5 million, right? CMHC is saying for affordability, they're 1.8. You know, there's these numbers are saying a million. Like, but, but yeah, it's, it's not, it's not 50,000. That's yeah, my point. My yeah. point is we're either short, the best estimate I can see, the most conservative one is about 300,000, 350,000. I know. CMHC saying to make houses affordable, we're going to be short just almost 2 million. 
So we need two, then 1.8 million. We need 2.8, 2.7, whatever we're going to build. Here's what it is. That's, that's across Canada, 2.7. No, that's Ontario. Oh, Ontario. That's why I'm freaking out. Oh, above the 760. Yeah. So, we're, so what I'm saying is like pick your, you know, so we're either short 300,000 or we're short, you know, 1.9 million, 2 million, whatever it is. But we're not short, to your point, 25,000, 50,000 homes. And we're not in surplus. It's, it's really hard to run, run the numbers in any reasonable way and be like, no, we're good. We're going to be in a surplus situation. Because especially when you have the conversations with builders who are like, look, the chances of us really increasing our pace of development in any meaningful way with the way, uh, the way regulations are structured now, maybe that changes or whatever. But they're like, between the regulations, the raw material supplies, and then the labor they're just like, there's no hope right now. So unless those, uh, some factors change in those three things, it's not going to change much. So like, are we in a situation where at the end of this decade, if you tell somebody, I own a single family home in Brantford, Ontario, they're going to be saying, oh my gosh, like you're, you're part of like this elite class of asset owner. It kind of feels that way. Like it kind of like, cause I, cause I could say like, if you had some Toronto home in Rosedale, like if you had some, you know, a condo in Yorkville or something that was always like, wow, like you got this like really nice condo in Yorkville, holy smokes, you know, but are we headed towards, wow, you own a single family home in Brantford? How did you accomplish that? Like, it kind of feels like we're headed there. You own a single family home in Barrie, Peterborough, Belleville, Niagara. Wow. Yeah, it's hard it's hard to, to think about that and look like in you know 10 or 15 years and how that looks in 10 or 15 years and look back i mean if you look back 10 or 15 years ago if you look at the rosedale or bridal yeah. path or you know those types of the places they seem a lot more affordable back then, then than they do now but at the time it seemed like wow like you know that's a real stretch to, to be able to buy those so yeah you, you never know it, like you know my, the, my first reaction to that is like yeah i think that might be a fo- bit far-fetched but at the same time you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I'm like, wow, the possibility exists. Even That'll be weird, seems, no? Yeah. That'll be weird. I don't think it, I don't think it spreads that far out. Maybe just, just in different areas of the city and closer to the city, that type of stuff happens. I don't know how far out that particular type of thing spreads. Where somebody's just, like, holy smokes, you own a single family in Brantford and they're like kind of freaking yeah, out. Yeah, like does it get out to Brantford? Does it go yeah. to London? Is Windsor included in that? You know, I have no idea. But do, it, feels, do, it feels like it to me. It, it feels like it is. But I mean, look, like when people started moving to Mississauga, so I'll use Mississauga as we grew up there. I mean, it was this tiny little bedroom community that, there you know. There was farms. There was farms between our house and square yeah. one. Yeah. But then eventually there's like more and more development and prices go up. And now you look at, I mean, what what, what is it like the um, what is Mississauga Road, you know, area and different areas of Mississauga Road. You're just like, well, those homes are, you just look at those. Yeah. Wow. You, you were able that to Mineola buy one of those era, homes. Yeah, yeah. Like that's how people look at a lot of those types of properties now. So yeah, in a lot of ways, we've already headed that way, but it does seem extreme, but it doesn't mean that things that seemed extreme 10 years ago didn't come to fruition. Yeah. We have a student property at McMaster University that you're telling me is worth a million bucks. I don't believe it. It might not be a million. It might be like eight, nine, eight now, maybe I would say 950, maybe now 890. But I mean, it's just out Call it eight. Yeah. Call it eight hundred. Like it, it just seems. It doesn't I'll, seem like it should be priced. Yeah, like that, when yeah. we bought it to say that it was eight hundred, it's going to be worth eight hundred. Yeah, it just seems a little bit ridiculous, right? So yeah, I remember when we bought that house. I thought uh, my half ownership in that house with you, hopefully, would pay for Aiden, my you know my oldest, his schooling. 
Now half of that property with the mortgage being paid down and what it, you know, what that is worth, a half of that property would pay for all of Aiden's education, all of my daughter's upcoming university education, and leave money on the table to buy them each a car. Yeah, it would do that. It would pay for both and a car for each. Yeah, better than leaving in the bank. Yeah, better than <laughs> leaving in the bank. So then I guess Well, condo the, prices now like I regularly are crossing two thousand square foot in Toronto. That's crazy. And it wasn't long ago when they crossed a thousand. And we freaked right? out. And people were like, oh, a thousand, like thousand, like the new norm. Like it's everywhere is now a thousand, you know, and then they, they quickly amped up. Doesn't mean they can't come back down because everything kind of has, has overshot kind of even like the kind of fundamentals. But, you know, they come back down to what? They're not going back down to a thousand. Like look at just raw material labor costs and stuff like that. They sure aren't going there. So it'll be, it'll, you know, it'll stop someplace. It'll be interesting. I wanted to talk about just uh, variable rates and fixed rates for any, and Nick, I'm curious to your thoughts, but anyone who has a variable rate mortgage now who's thinking rates might go up. And if you don't know this, you can lock in your variable rate mortgage to a fixed rate. So if in your mind you are, you know, just totally freaked out about variable rate mortgages and you're like, I need to have some certainty in my life. You can call the bank. Usually it's just a one page form that they'll kind of have you sign and you can lock in a rate. So if you think, you know, if you have a lot of term left, say you have four years left in a five-year term and you want to lock it in, that's an option just so everyone's aware. I feel like a lot of people who have variable rates don't know that. Nick and I, you and I are still comfortable with the variable rates just on based where we're seeing the economy and what we think might happen. Um, but if you're in a financial situation where you need to lock in rates because you want to sleep at night and you're not able to sleep at night because you, you're just wondering where rates are going to go, just be aware if you have a variable rate mortgage, I think, Nick, it's almost always, no? I, whenever any bank we've ever dealt with, you've always been able to lock in a rate from a variable rate. So yeah. I haven't heard I, otherwise I any, I don't know of any exceptions to that. Yeah. So that's what that's just what comes to mind on some variable rate stuff. And uh, um, something else I wanted to bring up was rents. We're seeing some incredibly high rents um, hit Ontario. And I guess what it's kind of normal when you see when it's more and more difficult to buy homes, but the population base is continually increasing like it has here, it's just going to push rental demand. And we saw, um, Nick, I think it was, was it St. Catharines? I think it was a single family home in St. Catharines. Somebody in our team just uh, had an investor rented out for just, uh, just over $3,000 a month or exactly, or just over somewhere right around that number. And it kind of blew us away because we were trying to guess, I think it was about five years ago where a single family home in St. Catharines would have rented it out at like 1900 bucks. Well, there's lots of single family homes that rent out for more than that. So just to be clear, it's the it's like kind of older ones. It might be like a three bedroom bungalow. Like a, like older, a starter older home. property. Yeah. You know, so just in case people are wondering, well, there's like single family homes that rent out for 8,000 a month, right? So, yeah. So like a star, yeah, that's a good, good clarification. Three bedroom um, bungalow home that may be, yeah, that kind of yeah, some updates, not completely, you know, not completely brand new everywhere, but some updates, it's not all original either. Yeah. You know, that, that type of scenario on a, we'll call it what, 40 by 120 sure. or 30, a lot or something like that, right? So yeah, we're seeing rents um, push up pretty much right across the board in every category. I'm trying to think where we haven't seen rents move up. No, rents are up everywhere. I think the, they're just across the board, the rent, the pace of rent increases the last few months has been um, really fast in all sorts of areas. And, and it's just, it goes back to as things get tighter here 
um, to buy because of either mortgage qualification or interest rate moves, the demand in the rental market picks up. It's, it's no different. We've seen this in, in multiple different areas, in multiple different market uh, 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 conditions. It's just, this is just kind of normal stuff. And we've seen it time and time again here. Like this, is, it's, it's no different, which is nice for long-term investors. That What else happens too for long-term investors is their tenants, the tenant turnover drops dramatically because as rental prices increase, they the tenants don't want to leave because they don't want to pay higher rents elsewhere. So for current investors, the downside is, the, the upside is typically tenant um, stability increases and the downside is you don't get the benefit of those rent increases unfortunately but you will get them down the road when the tenant you know turns over and you can increase a certain amount i'm will, really in, interesting to see what they you know because inflation's higher this year and they've always suppressed those rent increase numbers so i'm really interested to see what number they come out with with the kind of uh, approved rent increase percentage this year It'll be, uh, it'll, I guess it comes out, I usually it comes out, what, September has for, for next zero? year. Has it ever been zero? No, I think it's led with a zero. I think it's, yeah, like I think I remember 0. 0.6 once, yeah. 0.8, maybe it was 0.8, yeah. Something like that. So, so, but I'm, is it going to, like, you know, inflation's obviously, like, even the government numbers are saying inflation size. So, has that number come up a bit? But, uh, but yeah, so that's that's the benefit. So, long term investors, there's a good side and downside to that. I mean, ultimately, to me, it's a good side because, m- the vast majority of people that are investing for the long term, they're in a cash flow positive situation already. So that cash flow positive component, it might not grow as much as it could if the tenant left and they put in a new tenant. But if it stabilizes as well, um, because you know tenants don't want to leave because they don't want there's no turnover, there's higher prices elsewhere. That's that's kind of the good side of that as well. And I guess I so just thinking this through over the next few months, everyone's got to be really concerned or aware of liquidity. I think, and when I say liquidity, what I what I guess we're talking about is that as interest rates rise, more and more free dollars in an economy goes towards paying debt and interest on that debt. And when the money's flowing in that direction, the price of almost everything in those dollars that are being used to pay that debt will come down because there's less of those dollars slushing around. So real estate prices come down as interest rates are higher and the interest payments are higher, it's harder to qualify and real estate prices are just... We definitely are seeing that in the stock market. Equity prices will adjust. We'll start to see what will happen in the bond market because if rates go rates go up now, the bond market is going to be pretty interesting to see if the bond market if the bond market kind of forecasts a recession. I actually should just pull up. But even not treasury. even if not even these financial instruments, it just happens across the board. So like used cars is a really popular one, right? Used car prices are way up. Used car prices come down. There's just less money in the system to pay for for kind of everything that that generally is what happens yeah sorry i'm just looking at like the three month what's the three month trend it's kind of just stable so the u.s 10-year which is you know considered a really important economic indicator in the bond market is just kind of peaked out and sitting kind of flat right now deciding if it's going to go up or it's going to go down or where it's going to go from here well it's, it, i mean it's down it, a little it, bit yeah yeah well it's down a bit it's down 10 percent. yeah it was it went from 3.5 to 3.2 yeah yeah, I just so, don't know where we had it. I can't, it's not. Clear no, you're right, but in those, like, but in those terms, like that, those aren't small moves for the for the bond market, right? Yeah, yeah. Like that's no, but I just mean when I when I look at it like that, it's like you can kind of see yeah. like it's kind of trended up since pretty strongly since January, and it's just kind of yeah, it's come down a little bit from its ultimate peak there at three point five to three three. Yeah, 3.2. is that the ultimate peak? That's the that's where we're, where we're at. at. Like, is is that going to go higher? Because if it comes down. It's telling us that 
it, well, if that the, starts coming down, fixed rate mortgages start coming, coming down. down. It's telling well, that's us in the U S we got to look at the Canadian. Yeah. Market. But I mean, it's an indicator just for the biggest economy. Like we're, we're talking about, it would be telling us that there's a recession. The bond market thinks there's a recession. So if we see that U S 10, 10 year treasury note come down from here, like let's say it dips back into like 2.8, 2.9 territory. Then after that, it looks like it would be telling us there's, I'm hesitating here because who knows what's going to happen. But if it comes under three, you would think that it's starting to indicate to us that the bond market thinks a recession is happening. So we'll see. It's basically the end of the summer. The, by the end of the summer, we're kind of know which way we kind of break or not. And then back on the liquidity, um, the liquidity front, it's going to continue to affect everything. The stock market, real estate, crypto world, definitely. And the crypto world is completely guilty. That whole world, if everyone's been following Three Arrows Capital, if you haven't, it's a big hedge fund that was completely leveraged. It blew up when that Luna stablecoin, that algorithmic stablecoin blew up and they were overexposed to Luna. It started blowing up and they had to sell some of their Bitcoin to try to survive. So Luna sold a bunch of their Bitcoin to try to survive. Then Three Arrow Capital sold a bunch of their Bitcoin. So we're just going to see liquidity problems with anyone who's over leveraged here. And the dollar price of things is going to fluctuate down. And it'll be, it's just going to be interesting to see where this settles. Or I guess, Nick, the alternative for this and some of the macro guys that we, we enjoy following believe right at this moment, we are at the bottom that this is where things start to turn, that the most of the liquidity has been sucked out of the economy and we're going to start to turn from here. And everyone's kind of debating, do we get one more little flush out first or is this it and we turn? I would, if I was just a gambling person, I would say we have one more step, like things flush harder than this. I feel like there's been not enough so. pain. I just remember the tech crash and kind of like, the 20, 2000 to 2022, there was like, it came down and then there was like a bit of a recovery and everyone's like, oh my gosh, I think we're kind of through this and it came down more. I feel like we're at that moment where it needs to come down more. I feel and like really the, bring the bottom pain. is like, yeah, usually it's quick. It's not sustained like this. Yeah. The actual, yeah. the real, real bottoms, like it, it, like, and then bounces off a little, it comes down hard and it bounces off a little bit and then it sustains and then builds from there. That's typically... Yeah. And I think it's in these environments that I feel like you really need to feel comfortable with the type of things you own in your life. Like single family home income properties, I still feel really good about, mm -hmm. especially in Ontario. I know kind of what the, I kind of expect, have my expectations with our own historical research on what income levels should be as far as rents and how rents sustain themselves in different economic environments. I still feel comfortable with my Bitcoin. So I like, there's no counterparty risk with things like my Bitcoin. I feel like the counterparty risk with single family homes is stuff I can control, study the economy, study interest rates, try to control those as best as possible. If I freak out, I lock in rates if I choose to, which we haven't, but we could, but I know the rents. Whereas I, to be fair, the gold's actually held up very well in this environment. It, it, it didn't get the run up that all these other, like the stock markets and the real estate, the Bitcoin didn't get that big run up like all those other assets did, but it also hasn't gone down either. I mean, I'm, when I'm saying hasn't, it, I'm like, maybe it's a percent here or there, you know, I'm talking any real way. I, you're making me think Peter Schiff put out a tweet yesterday because I don't know if you saw it. It's what's his name? Gary Gensler or whatever. The Securities and Exchange Commission. Yes. Yeah, and Bitcoin's a commodity. Commodity. And then Peter Schiff came out and said, well, then it would be the only commodity with no utility. 
And when I just see that kind of comment, I kind of chuckle to myself because I feel like asking the guy, what is the utility of a global monetary network where you can exchange value instantaneously? Because he's thinking his gold has utility that he'll always say, well, you can use it in electronics and, you know, there's some utility to it. It can be used as jewelry and all these kinds of things. Whereas I'm thinking, do you have you you still do not understand what you're looking at? He's still completely lost. If you compare the utility of gold to Bitcoin, it's not even comparable anymore. Like it's not even in the same league. I don't know. I, I don't know. I think if you're coming from a monetary aspect of it, I think it is. I think gold clearly there's more belief in gold as a financial instrument globally than there is in Bitcoin. Sure. As a representation of the amount of like different currencies that have gone in in exchange for gold has more history for right? sure yeah and you're and, never going to win and that if you, if you if you I'm just attribute talking. that to some sort of utility right and I know what but I know he's what not he, in I that regard that, that, but that's my point yeah. that's my point I'm like if we're just talking store of value then yeah you can't fight gold it's been coinage for like 2500 years yeah. I'm, you're never going to win that argument I'm just talking on his point is that it is something more valuable because of its utility and he's not talking about the store value. Mm-hmm. As far as I understand his argument, he's talking about like... The well, I've never heard him explain... Yeah, I, the only part I've ever heard him say is he can be used in manufacturing processes. Yeah, 100%. And I'm like, really? Like, that's kind of... You're going to die on that sword? But the he old- does have the history. And, I, and you're right. You can't argue 2,500 years of being a monetary metal. There's nothing that's going to battle that. It's the champ, as far as that's concerned. Well, it's- so far, it's been more stable in a lot of these times. And, you, you know, like just over... the And I'm, I don't mean in the last few months. I mean in over decades you know it's had to run up it's had to come back down but it's even the way it's done it and then gone back up and the way it's done it's just been more of a stabilizing force in many ways versus yeah, a lot and of i can see assets. governments are going to use like if, if there is a monetary change throughout this m- massive economic turbulence that we're in yeah perhaps gold plays a role china's loading up on it russia's clearly loading up on it absolutely i could see gold being used by nation states before bitcoin 100 percent the, the, but some of the arguments, though, I just I can't even stand for them anymore because I can't even verify if you really have the gold you say you have. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's an open ledger. Mm-hmm. I can verify it. So yeah. like some of the arguments and, and I'm not trying to argue that gold's going away tomorrow. It's not. You know, when the, when country like China and Russia and the U.S. I'm are, not saying I, I'm not saying it is. I'm not arguing. I'm just saying I just some of the arguments for you need it. people to to have the same understanding. Yeah. Or value those points. I think it's maybe because some well, people they value might, it. I just some think people they might don't understand, understand it and not care. No, I think if any, if you said, hey, I'm going to give you some, don't worry, lend me some money. I have some gold as backup, but I can't verify it. If you said, hey, I have. Yeah, but uh, most people don't put the importance on that that you would. Sure, because gold isn't used day to day anymore. You're right. But I think but what if I gave someone a gold coin, most people, I, I, don't, I shouldn't say most people, but I know there's going to be a percentage of people that are just like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, it's a rock. And you're, while it's I'm, a shiny rock. No, while I'm giving it to them, you're like, hey, how do you know that? You can't verify that. You know, and I think it's going to be, well, I don't know, it's a gold coin and it's okay. Like this whole open ledger thing, it's not that it's not better. It's that, that too large a percentage of people right now, it's not very that, that, it's not really important mm-hmm. to them. Right. Mm-hmm. And there might there maybe there's a sequence of events where that becomes more important to them. Right. And it's likely it will. I know. I just feel like it's going to be too when that. So you're hitting exactly what I believe, that there is going to be a sequence of events where they are going to wish they understood this. And I feel at that point it's going to be too late because the rush of monetary value into it will drive it to a price point where, you know, it'd be better if you understood the value of it today. 
But you're right. You can't eat it. You can't. You're not going to pay for your groceries with it. The bottom line is, you still need cash in the bank to pay your bills, pay your rent, pay your mortgage, pay for groceries, pay for the kids' education. That's ultimately the value. So if you need you need liquid cash and you need cash flow, you need an income stream through a business or through income properties or in some capacity. Those things are of ultimate value. Longer savings, we could argue all day long. Bitcoin, gold. You know, where do you want to keep it? How are you going to use it? I think that I think for me that the thing that over the last few weeks that I've kind of reevaluated just anything, and whether it's gold or real estate or Bitcoin or stocks or a- anything, is that what I've looked at as everything's kind of like the, as this huge kind of you know bubble was deflating, right? Like call it the everything bubble, right? Um, but be, but. A bubble has a bad a bad term to it, so I almost don't want to use bubble. So just but just as the value of things was just kind of coming down because liquidity, like money, was being mm-hmm. removed from the system. So when I looked at things, I had to go back and just evaluate. Okay, what was my initial reason for acquiring this? Does that still exist? Do I still believe in these principles of it? And what was my timeline? Because I've never been a trader. I've openly shared that. Like I'm a terrible trader. I can show anyone how to buy high and sell low. I'm very good at trading on emotion and losing money. Like I'm, I'm an expert. I, I, I can give courses. And, um, but for this, it's like, well, look, anything. Really? You should put a course together. Should, yeah, hey, well, I will lose your money faster than anyone else. I bet you, I wonder, some people would, would come just to see like, Hey, wow. listen, here's how you do it real quick. You buy this and you sell this. Wait for things to be like really running up yeah, yeah and then at just about when it's been there for like six six months and everyone's talking about it then go all in yeah and yeah. then wait for it wait for it to turn <laughs> right but um so when i uh um I lost your turn oh yeah yeah no, no, you know what i was thinking yeah i did it was uh so i, I looked at it so I was like why did i initially buy this you know what what role was it serving for me in kind of my kind of investing portfolio whether it's like active or long-term savings or whatever and what was my initial time horizon? For me, the initial time horizon was the big one because you get caught up in the hype cycle. Yeah, you yeah. 100% get caught up in it. And, you know, well, let's take Bitcoin as an example because we we're just talking about it or the gold. My timeline for buying those was long. Mm-hmm. It was never, you know, six months, three months, one year, two years. It wasn't even three years. It was like five plus years and maybe even longer. So why am I getting caught if 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 I still believe if I still believe in the asset and my nothing's changed that can change my opinion and have an honest conversation like look out you know look for other sources of information that kind of challenge your beliefs right so and then nothing really changed I still kind of believe in those and I'm like why am I getting caught up in this I was never going to sell it today anyways like this wasn't this wasn't the the point right now if if something's changed and it's like whoa this doesn't look like a good you sure, know, if the fundamentals... The Russian central bank is selling, maybe Russia is a bad example right now because of the war, but like China and Russia have got together um, and said, oh, we're going to get rid of all our gold. And they dump all their gold and they stopped, they stopped using gold as a monetary asset. You know what? I probably don't want my gold very much either. You know, so, yeah, the so, fundamentals change. Yeah, so then then you've got to start making some some moves. But if everything else is in place and you've had this long time horizon, then you've got to kind of remove yourself a little bit from... You can pay attention to it to a point, but you can't get caught up in it. Yeah. And that's the challenge. And it's very hard to do when you well, see And it's an important point because you do research on things. Most people, are, many of our friends included, won't buy things with research behind it. 
So for example, you know why you're buying a single family home in Ontario because you can recite population stats, you can recite economic trends and interest rate trends in the world, short term, medium term and long term. So you have all these reasons why real estate would make sense for you. For gold, you have all these reasons why gold is right for you with the appropriate time frame. For Bitcoin, the same thing. You have some reasons why you're buying these things. Whereas I find most people purely look at the price of something and if it's trending up, they want in on it. And as soon as it's trending down, they think it's a failure and they want to dump it. So for example, I have many people who have asked me, Tom, do you still believe in that Bitcoin thing? It looks like that's a dumper, a dumpster fire, dumper fire. I was gonna say dumper fire, dumpster fire. I'm like, well, no, the, the fundamentals of Bitcoin itself haven't changed. The fact that there's liquidity sucking out of the market, changing the dollar price of it is a short, medium term thing for me. But the fundamental reasons of why I'm buying Bitcoin or real estate mm -hmm. or gold in your example here, they don't change, but you need the backstory. You need the, you need the information. You have to have done the due diligence because if you're just buying it on price trends, you're lost. Well, even like, the Bitcoin one's a good example. I just didn't want to use Bitcoin, uh, you know, purposely um, just to talk about something else. But the Bitcoin one's a good example with what happened in the market right now, because there's in what, you know, people will refer to as the crypto space and, and, and Bitcoin gets lumped into that. There's been a couple major failures, really fraudulent companies that have now gone under and removed a lot of money out of that market. And in some ways, so, and that's reflected on the price of Bitcoin because it drags down everything. But in some ways, long-term, that actually almost makes Bitcoin stronger because it's, it, it's further separating itself from all these other kind of monopoly money coins. Yeah, tech platforms right? that are trying to yeah. succeed, yeah. Yeah, you know, so, so because I had to have that conversation with myself over the last few weeks too. I'm like, okay, so I have all this Bitcoin, like, should I do something? You know, what am I doing with give it? Give it to like, your brother. What's that? You should say, <laughs> hey, I would like to gift this to my brother. So I'm like, should I give it, give, should I save give it, it for the kids or should I just get rid of it now before, you know, it's saying give it to give them something that they're actually going to want. But, um, but yeah, and, that, and then you got to look at that, right? And, and it's the same thing. It's, it's if you believe in that, you know, the open monetary network, which I do. I mean, I just think that's like, it, I, I believe it's a huge thing, even though I was kind of challenging you on, on it before it because people don't believe in it. I do. And I'm just like, man, if that kind of catches on, that thing's huge, right? Um, so there's, there's, there's other factors as well. So, so then, yeah, you kind of stick with it, right? No, no different than the real estate. I mean, the reason we've held on to these properties from like, there's properties that we've had for uh, I don't know twenty plus years, yeah. right? Since we started investing, is just the long term. We believe in these things long term. And if I sold the properties any time that a, a property, uh, any time that the value kind of let's say shrank a little bit because there was a recession or interest rates went up or whatever, in over the last whatever 20, 25 years then how am I getting back into the market at the time? And then I have to go acquire the assets again. I'm just creating more work for myself. Sometimes there's value to just holding these things. And I think that's the difference between a trader and an investor. And all the kind of, I guess, all the investors that I felt like these old school guys, like the Jim Rogers of the world and stuff, I always found his stuff valuable. And it's, you, it's like this buy and hold mentality is what is, is the most valuable thing. And it's the traders that, yeah, sometimes you hit it big. But very often you don't, and I just don't have the mentality to do that. And I've never seen someone really kind of, there have been a handful of instances that when, when guys have kind of really hit, like shorted something, or they've kind of like- Sure, even real estate a, flippers, a, 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 same. The market. Yeah, but even flippers, like they usually cash out bit by bit. There's never just this like massive home run usually, right? Maybe I guess if they're redeveloping a property or they're taking a commercial property and- But it's hard to do it consistently is what I'm saying, just like trading. Yeah. 
so anyways, that's where I've just seen, I guess, you know, the information I've got and the information, the people that have communicated best or what resonates with me is from those sources. And I've seen it be successful there. So for me, it's successful. It's, it's the philosophy that works for me with my mentality, with the way I do research or my skill set that is emotion based and trading on emotions is like a very bad thing to do. I have examples. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Really, I'm a really good poker player too. I can, <laughs> I can last about five hands before I get bored and say all in. So, so I think some of the things, and Nick, I'd be interested in your thoughts as we kind of wrap up here, is that some of the things going through our, our mind or my mind right now is having access to liquidity. So, and what I mean by that is cash reserves of some sort in my life, my family's life, our business's life, our real estate. Do we have access to liquid cash? whether that's going to be savings or credit lines that I believe are going to be there and accessible to me. Do I have that in my life? I think over the next six months as interest rates go up, that's essentially sucking cash out of an economy. So I want access to cash in that world because that's really important, you know, for the day-to-day -day living stuff. And then how many streams of cash flow or income can I maintain and create? You know, whether we've, we've talked on this podcast before about creating your own business or having properties that produce streams of income for you, cash flow, and then longer term savings at this point is important. But I think in this moment, the focus would be, do I have liquid, do I have liquidity in my life? Do I have liquid cash? And how can I protect my streams of income or cash flow as you know, those are going to be really, really important in an economy where it's shrinking. Yeah. And what's the cash flow situation like? Because if you're, if, if some interest rates moves have caused you to, you the cash flow situation to shrink or even go negative, then you need the, to your point to protect those over the long term. you might need to protect them with some capital infusion, just like, just like businesses, when businesses have a down year or whatever, sometimes you need to infuse some capital into it for the long-term health of the business. Real estate, we've always looked at it as a, real, a business in a box. It's really no different with that than that type of thing. Yeah, and sometimes you right? need to invest into it to keep it. Yeah, and sometimes it all comes at once too. I mean, this year in one of our properties I had for a long time with, with, uh, with a friend that you know, um, we did some renovations. Then I forget two things came up. So we did a bunch of renovations. So we invested into that that we wanted to do. Then it was like a month later, the furnace went. We're like, oh man, we just spent all this money and we didn't budget for that. So that was a new furnace. And then something else that came up. There was a few thousand bucks that were just like, oh. So then all of a sudden, that account for that particular property, the funds got very tight because it just all kind of happened at once. And I th we've all been through that in those types of situations, right? So it's just something that you got to kind of protect and, and just watch for and, and monitor. And I think right now we're also just then after all that, which, yeah, I agree with what you're saying is the just being hypersensitive to the economy right now and late summer trying to see which way this breaks. Are we in an environment where rates keep ripping higher because inflation keeps ripping higher? Or is there a little bit of a shift and we get some liquidity or hints maybe of in the winter or spring of next year, does QE ramp back up and liquidity and how do you set yourself up for that type of environment? I think mid-September when the August numbers start coming out we should until mid-October because the mid-October is when the Q3 numbers will start coming out, right? So that's when you really start getting an idea of what's going oh, yeah. on. Yeah, 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 because we'll get Q2 numbers late July into August. We'll know how the yeah, first so half of the, U the U.S. economy was and the Canadian economy. And then... Uh, yeah, so it's really late September to late October. That's I, that's kind of, even from, yeah. I guess, when, when did this start? April, May? We've been kind of waiting. We're like, okay, it, let's, you know, this is going to be choppy. And then that, at least we felt, or I felt, I don't know, that 
by that time, we're going to have a little bit of an inclination of where things are kind of headed. Like it's a long, like what's the new base that we're building off yeah. of and which way and that type of stuff. Yeah. Interesting times. So there you have it. Anything else, Nick? No, we'll that's wrap. it. Okay. Hey everyone. So hopefully you enjoyed that episode. And if you are listening to this and you are getting ready to start on your own real estate investing journey, and you want a little bit more information before you take the plunge, you can get a free digital copy of our book, Income for Life for Canadians. It's been downloaded tens of thousands of times, and you can get a free digital copy at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. Until next time, your life, your terms.